Hey everyone, welcome back to Fits in a Fighter. Uh, another special edition for you. Of course, a couple weeks ago I had MMA coach Saif Saud. We talked about personal development. I didn't know what that would turn into in terms of a series or whatever. Uh, still to be determined on that. But I thought since I have a platform, a podcast, a YouTube channel, I might as well just kind of branch out and use it and create content because I like to do it and I like to pay it forward. So the backstory on this one, uh, this show is for aspiring broadcasters. And the backstory here is, of course, I was once an aspiring broadcaster that was very early in my career or in school and I just wanted to do uh, sports broadcasting at the top level. Didn't exactly know what. It's changed over the years and I'll get into that. But When I got into the field, I was a a writer. I basically rolled the teleprompter for a local news station in Phoenix. And I was a writer and a sports producer a couple of days a week. It was an entry-level job. And the main sports anchor at that station was Rashi Mabuku, a guy from Hawaii who now is back in Hawaii. He's a news anchor in the morning there. And he kind of took me under his wing, but it wasn't just me. I feel like he did that for a lot of people that came through, interns and other people that were entry-level. And I just never forgot both what he taught me, but then also how awesome he was to a young broadcaster and kind of uh, spurring me on and and giving me tips and things like that. And I always kind of promised myself after working with someone like that, that I'd be a pay it forward type of person um, because it meant a lot to me in helping me get to where I've gotten to. And uh, I've always wanted to do that for others. Another thing is that he was friends with Neil Everett because he had worked with him in Hawaii way back in the day. And Sports Center anchor Neil Everett now with ESPN for a long, long time. And so I randomly, I had already loved Neil, and I randomly emailed Neil when I was working in Wyoming, just emailed him my link of, of my latest resume reel, and I didn't know if he would respond. But uh, we had a friend in common, I dropped his name and just whatever, see, see what happened. And Neil Everett called me the very next day. And uh, I didn't get the phone call because I wasn't by my phone, but he left like a three-minute message. I still have the message to this day saved somewhere. And it was really uh, a good critique of my video, and it was uh, kind words of encouragement. And, you know, whatever you're doing as a career path or as a hobby, to get some validation from somebody who's quote-unquote made it uh, is really important. If you're a young fighter and a UFC fighter says, hey man, you're really good, you have a lot of potential, keep going with it. That obviously means a lot. And so as a young broadcaster at the time, that meant a lot to me to kind of keep pushing forward, that I'm not crazy uh, covering rodeos and living in Wyoming, and, and that it does lead to something bigger if you stick it out and if you want to keep learning and have the right attitude. So shout out to those two guys. I've helped out you know, people who have asked over the years. Uh, I'd like to think that I've treated all of the interns well that I've worked with and other younger broadcasters. I have kind of a coaching tree, if you will, of some um, people that I've worked with in the past that I've helped along and always been there for a phone call with. And uh, as my platform's kind of gotten bigger, more and more people have reached out to me because obviously my you know footprint on social media and things like that grows with the, the bigger jobs. And people that I never met, uh, more and more, they email me and they're like, what do I do to get to where you are? Uh, in simple terms. And, um, you know, unfortunately, there's just not enough time to sit down and write an email to every single person that does that. Um, but I do want to help everybody and, and help especially young broadcasters because I was there once and I would have killed for a video like this 
uh, somebody who's made it to kind of talk about how they made it and what they can do because at the start, it's really kind of mind-boggling. What do I do? How do I take that first step? What do I even do? I mean, that's a big kind of part of the journey is just how do you even start? Of course, I feel like I could get there, but how do I even take the first step? So I put out a tweet and uh, took a screenshot of that and put it on Instagram for questions for aspiring broadcasters who uh, might want to learn about my journey or what they can do and things like that. And uh, other people have, you know, messaged me whether they track down my email address or LinkedIn or that sort of stuff. So this is the reason for this episode. It's on YouTube. Of course, it's on my podcast. And uh, maybe we'll do Q&As going forward in the future on a number of different things. But to have a community or to have listeners and that sort of thing has been really cool since I started the podcast. And obviously what you want to hear from most is uh, the fighters that I've interviewed and I will continue to do that, but thought let's branch out and see what this can be. So before I ramble too much off the top, I'm just going to get into the uh, questions. And um, so I'm going to consult Instagram first. And there's a few questions here that are uh, similar in nature. Uh, Eric asks, what's your background? Did you start out in radio? Any degrees or schooling in related fields? Uh, Cesar Gonzalez, how did you get to the spot you're at? And if you went to school, what school did you go to for the job? Basically, uh, what's your background? How did you kind of get into the field? So I, like a lot of other people, was a sports fan growing up. Fell in love with sports at a very young age. My dad loved sports. Uh, I was born in the Boston area, moved to Pittsburgh when I was a real little kid, like two years old. Lived there until I was six years old and then moved back to the Boston area. But my first memories in sports were in Pittsburgh, uh, Mario Lemieux and the Penguins and going to Steelers games and Pirates games. And then, of course, you know, in Boston, uh, growing up there. And obviously, it's a, it's a huge sports culture in both of those cities. So I knew that I love sports and I love playing sports all the way up. And of course, the goal is to play college football or play pro football or pro hockey or whatever sport you're into. And mine changed with the season. Whatever season it was, that was my favorite sport. And then you get a little older and not even older because I want to say that I had kind of had the goal to be in sports broadcasting when I was under 10 years old. I want to say that when I started really kind of putting together and watching sports on TV and noticing, hey, that guy is calling all of the Pittsburgh Penguins games, or that guy is on TV constantly, or he's at the Super Bowl, those guys at the beginning of the game talking, and then they're the soundtrack of the sport, right? And uh, I asked my dad, how do those guys get to do it? Because in my mind, it was a hobby. These guys get to go to the games, and they talk about it, and they're just the ones on camera. And maybe I was just enough of an extrovert uh, where I wanted to know why the guys that were on camera got to do that and everybody else was just in the crowd. And basically told me that that's how they make their living. That's It's a job. It's a career. And from then on, I was hooked. I've always loved the call of the game. I think a lot of people do. You know, you're playing basketball in your driveway and you're announcing it to yourself, right, as you're kind of mimicking these moments of, you know, for me, Michael Jordan as a kid or in hockey that he shoots, he scores while you're playing knee hockey with your brother. Um, So I'd always known that that was a possibility for a career. And, you know, as you get a little older and you realize, oh, maybe playing in the NHL is uh, not exactly the easiest thing to do, but I feel like I could talk about sports. I feel like I could do that just as good as anybody else. So my background was of that, and you know, even in high school, I 
did sports radio. I played hockey and football. Those were my big sports, but I announced basketball games on our high school radio station, which I kind of pushed for them to keep alive or, or rejuvenate. The radio station was kind of falling down, but there was a, a teacher there that was allowed me to kind of continue it, and I called play-by-play for all the home basketball games. Um, I looked for colleges with broadcasting programs. I settled on Ithaca College in upstate New York. Obviously, Syracuse is an hour and a half up the road. That has the huge name as a big broadcasting school, but there's more and more. It's becoming a more popular field because media is just growing. There's just a whole lot more avenues to pursue media careers, whether it's on digital media, social media, YouTube, um, the big networks, the local affiliates, all the blogs, everybody can be a member of the media. So now I, Arizona State and Miami and Tennessee and, and all these schools have big media programs, and those are great programs to be at if you want to be in sports broadcasting, especially because they have Division One teams. So if you're majoring in uh, sports broadcasting or just journalism in general at Alabama, well, then you get to cover sports alongside you know the biggest names at ESPN that cover college football. Ithaca College, Division Three athletics, so we got up close and personal, but it's it didn't have that big feel. So if you're looking to go into the schooling route, if you're young enough to do that, then I would say pursue a journalism college with a broadcasting program. It doesn't have to be a major sports program, but I think that certainly helps in terms of you commingling with some important names. You know, when when ESPN comes to town, uh, they might work with some of the local. People there, like the SEC network, they have control rooms at all the different SEC schools. And the ACC network, those those big-time sports program schools, they have connections with the big networks because they're kind of partners uh, in some ways. So anyways, that's my background. That's how I got into it. And then uh, eventually you get your first job uh, after that. So I, I don't want to go through the total process here, but... Um, just after college, you look for a job, you send out a resume tape. It's a lot different now with YouTube and, and social media and things of that nature, but I think you just look for, for the first job that you can get um, through finding things on uh, online in terms of contacts. Uh, I'll get into that more in just a moment. I want to keep with these uh, questions here. So uh, Charlie Van, fan of mine from Dallas, Texas. How, how's it going, Charlie? What's the best route for someone to get into MMA commentary, even on the regional scene, and do they do tryouts for new talent? So my journey is of such where I was always into traditional sports, especially uh, from a broadcasting perspective, until I got in to MMA by working for the UFC uh, through Dana White's Contender Series back in 2017. So I honestly don't have the best answer in terms of what's the best way to get into MMA commentary. Obviously, there's a lot of regional shows that you could look up, and they're there. You might not know that they're there, but they're there. And um, the hardcore MMA fans would know that, that in their city, there's probably some sort of fight. There seems to be guys coming out of all different cities and states and countries and that sort of thing. Um, I think the best way for those shows is find out if they do have a production, if they're looking for people, if they want to pursue that. I think some of these smaller promotions uh, just want whatever promotion they can get. And if they're not on YouTube, then put them on YouTube and and maybe you can be the announcer. It might be easier to get in that sort of way, but obviously you contact the promoters. Like in Calvin Cater's case, the UFC featherweight, he runs a promotion in New England and I don't know what their production capabilities are or what they have, but 
hey, you reach out to Calvin Cater or that team that surrounds that promotion and see if you can connect with them. But I couldn't tell you this is the path to get into MMA commentary because uh, it's not necessarily the path that I took. Do they do tryouts for new talent? The UFC does. Um, not all the time, though. So right now, we're not really looking for another person in our role because John Anik is the play-by-play guy. I'm the play-by-play guy. John Gooden is for our international events. So I don't think there's a hole in the gap. But the way that I got my job was there was um, a role for somebody uh, for Dana White's Contender Series. They were looking for announcers for that series. And I obviously got an opportunity. And the way that I did that was I was part of an audition. I did an audition. I think there were about 10 or 12 total play-by-play broadcasters that they brought in for that and a handful of uh, UFC fighters for analysts because, of course, that's how Paul Felder got into the broadcasting gig that he's in now as well. Um, so time to time, from time to time, yes, there are open tryouts, um, but you know that's luck of the draw. I don't think it's... You can't really call... Uh, an organization, the same way that if you, you want to work at ESPN, you kind of have to earn your way there and have an agent and have a connection. You can't just show up on the door to ESPN and say, hey, I'd like to try out. And it's kind of a similar uh, way with, uh, with the UFC. Jacob on Instagram asked me, what is the process of preparing to commentate a particular event like? How many weeks ahead do you begin researching fighters? Uh, when you need to commentate a fight between relatively unknown fighters, how do you go about preparing info on them? And do you think your job requires more memorization or improvisation? And is one skill more important than the other? Thanks for the invitation. All right, Jacob, a lot, lot to unpack here. So what is the process of preparing to commentate a particular event like? Now, with the UFC, the difference with the UFC uh, with any other sport is that the broadcasts are long. They're six hours, seven hours long sometimes. Um, And so that's a big broadcast to prepare for when you think about it because how long is a typical football game? You know, a long one's four hours. But a run-of-the-mill football game's three, three and a half hours. And uh, when you think about that just gets you to the main card on the UFC show. We're on for three hours, and then it's time to start the main card. And then at the end of that is the most important fight, generally, of the night in the main event. So preparing for it is a lot. But I think the easiest thing, the easiest way to explain it is to break it down into a system of, of things. 13 fight card, there's 26 fighters. I need to know about 26 people. Um, and obviously there's a lot of other things that go into it in terms of knowing what's coming up or what just happened. But when you're in it day to day and covering a sport, like if you're covering baseball, you just kind of know what's happening all the time. Trade rumors and, and hirings and firings of managers and GMs and, and all that sort of stuff. And, and who is on a big winning streak. Maybe it's not the team that you cover, that sort of thing. So those um, auxiliary things kind of just sport. But in terms of preparing for a broadcast, you know, it's not the same with everyone because the schedule's different. You know, in February, I'm on my third straight fight weekend in Norfolk, Virginia. So the schedule for this one is different because I was just in New Zealand hosting the pre and post fight shows. And before that, I was in New Mexico on the play by play. But generally, you want to put time into each and every fighter. You know, if you're preparing for a basketball game and a basketball team has 12 players, maybe seven or eight of them play, and really you need to know about, you know, 
you kind of want to have information for all 12 of them, but you really need to know the big probably three to five, and then you need to know about like eight players who are in the rotation. But for the UFC events, you need to know a lot about every single fighter. Um, So I think just having a system, going through the list, you have a fight card, and you do your research on this person, and then when you, you feel like you have a satisfactory amount, you move on to the next person. And you do that really kind of 26 times. And as you do it more and more, you can kind of get more efficient at it. And also when you call more and more events, like uh, me and the two Johns have, you remember a lot and you have your notes from past fighters. You know, so Joe Benavidez, well, I've called some of his fights. So I have some no- a working list of notes on that. I can fall back on that in terms of his background. And then I could talk with him on Fight Week or read articles on, uh, about him that kind of talk about the latest in, in what he's up to. Um, so when you break it down like that, it's not as daunting as it was when I first started. It's like 24 fighters. I've never called any of these guys. I got to just start getting to work. But really, it's just chipping away at the process of it. When, in terms of unknown fighters, how do you prepare info on them? Um, you know, you do what you can. Google is uh, certainly a helpful resource. So a lot of times, not a lot of times, but sometimes lesser known prospects will come from certain places where they'll be that fighter from there. So um, example of Hunter Azure, who fought on the Contender Series last summer and he earned a contract and then he fought in Vancouver. Hunter Azure's from a town of 200 people in northeast Montana. And if you Google him, right, certain things will come up, his record and that sort of thing, maybe some YouTube videos of his fights. But if I want to know who he is as I prepare for him, click the News tab on Google, and sure enough, a local Montana newspaper wrote a feature on him because he was a four-time state champion wrestler in Montana in high school. And then it's he's trying to fight in the UFC. So I think before the Contender Series, there was a kind of a lengthy article on him uh, that described who he was and what his background was and that he got into it. His dad was a wrestling coach and his older brother was a wrestling coach and then he went into MMA. And all of a sudden, I just read an article on Hunter Azure that I found in the local paper in Montana that was available online. And now I get a real good sense of who he is um, going into the fight week. And then sometimes we have meetings with these guys, so we sit down with them or I'll have a phone call with him on Tuesday that's set up through UFC PR. And then, you know, he trained uh, in Arizona at Fight Ready. So Eddie Cha is a guy who trains the Korean zombies. Some, a lot of these up-and-comers, they have coaches in common with some of the bigger stars. So you'll have the coach's contact information and kind of talk to them about those guys. But, you know, when it comes to the lesser-known prospects, uh, you look for that first in terms of information online. And then you go from there with whatever you have. Sometimes if they're from Brazil and they're from a really small village in Brazil, there's not going to be a lot online. Um, You just do what you can. You have the information that you you can figure out. Maybe you talk to their manager. Maybe you have a meeting with them on fight week and just get a sense of it. And then as they continue fighting in the UFC and you call more and more of their fights or you see them fight more often, you just kind of add to the toolbox, so to speak, um, with more information on them. Do I think my job requires more memorization or improvisation? I think it's both. It's, it's, I don't know if it's 50-50 or 60-40 or whatever, 
but I think you have to have a lot of things memorized, which again, it's not like you have to sit down and memorize things like a drill. Um, the memorization comes in the fact that, you know, if you're a, a baseball fan, you can name all 32 baseball teams. Um, you didn't sit down and memorize it, but you can just name them because you follow the sport. So I think in terms of memorization, in terms of remembering what fighters are up to and that sort of thing, uh, there's definitely a healthy part of memorization that just gets ingrained by calling the sport. And improvisation, I mean, there's tons of improvisation. I do not uh, write down my fight calls ahead of time. Sometimes you'll have a note that you want to say on a walk. You, you have certain pieces of information that you know you want to say when the fighters are walking out. But I don't sit there with lines scripted for finishes of fights. That is all living in the moment. And so I think a strong ability to improvise, knowing who they are and what the background is that's doing your homework, and then a big fight call that can kind of lead to a big moment as that fighter gets bigger and bigger. Um, our crew and I always joke, like when Valentina Shevchenko beat Priscilla Cachueta in Belang, Brazil, and uh, she just dominated her, for anyone who remembers that fight. Poor Priscilla was just thrown to the wolves in her UFC debut, and Valentina was just bombing on her for almost two full rounds. And I said it was Valentina's first fight at 125 pounds. And so after the fight, and I kind of incorporated into the fight call, flyweight division, say hello to your worst nightmare. Because it was long thought that as soon as she came to 125, she was going to be the champion because she had fought the best of the best at 135 and she would hold her own. So that's now in every feature, you know, Valentina Shevchenko, if you've heard that, it's like that was a part of a call. I didn't have that written out, but I improvised like she's at 125 now. She just smashed this person and look out because she's gunning for the title and it for the rest of the flyweights, say hello to your worst nightmare, and it's lived on. So that's all improvisation. You need the homework of memorization and staying in it day to day, but you need to be able to improvise at the big moments, especially when you're calling play-by-play because you never know what's going to happen. In a football game, you don't know what's going to happen. In a fight, you don't know what's going to happen. You might think you might know how it will play out. This guy's a jiu-jitsu guy. Oh, he's probably going to get it done on the ground if it's Damian Maya having success, right? So you can kind of anticipate what it's going to be like, but you need to be able to improvise there. Um, is one skill more important than the other? Probably not. Um, probably not. I think that there's equal amounts of homework and then being able to kind of perform uh, when it's time. Let's see. Did those two. What's the most efficient way to prep for a fight card from Zane? Um, kind of went over it, but I think the most efficient way is to go fighter by fighter. You know, whether you start at the top of the card and start with the headliners and go down or start at the bottom, go up or any combination of, of, of such. But I think you need to be sure to put time into each fighter so that you feel that you have sufficient information on each fighter and what they're up to, what they've been up to, things that have happened in their personal lives. And then when you have enough information on them and you feel like you have a good grasp and can call their fight, then uh, you go on to the next person. That's generally homework before you leave, and then when you get to fight week, it's kind of just adding little pieces of information by talking to either the fighter themselves, their coach, their manager, things like that. Uh, let's see what other questions we have. 
Catchweight Update asks, how do I get involved at all working for a company like the UFC? Uh, I'm not going to say the B word. But um, getting involved with the UFC, I mean, it's a big company now. It's owned by Endeavor. Uh, Best I could say is just go on the website, go online. You can always try to find careers and stuff, whether it's the UFC, whether it's... uh, you know, different organizations. It can be tougher in terms of in roles like production, you know, in in roles like this, but, you know, they got to post the job online somehow or whatever. I think LinkedIn is a big uh, thing. I don't use LinkedIn for a lot, but it is there. If you search for companies, then you can kind of see people that work for those companies and you just try to reach out. It's like there are people on the other end of those conversations, whether they answer you or not, I don't know. Um, and that goes for any business and, and uh, anyone, but you're at least giving yourself a chance to make a connection with somebody. I just network online as best you can. The internet is certainly something that has helped, uh, I think, everybody in terms of getting jobs and networking and connecting with people that you normally would just be light years away from. If this was back in the 80s and you're trying to get a job at ESPN, it's like you got to send somebody a letter with postage on it and hope that they write you back or something. So, um, all right, David Shadman asked a ton of questions. What do you believe is the best practice towards sharpening your craft of commentary as well as being filmed on camera? Okay, um, sharpening your craft at commentary and being good on camera, doing it, doing it a lot. You know, there are people that have natural abilities, certainly to be on camera. They, they, they don't shy away from it. If you're a shy person, you kind of shell up when you're on camera, you're going to have to fight a little bit harder to climb that mountain. I was never that person. I was making home videos when I was a kid. We were even doing mock like sports centers when I was a kid. So I've always had that. But um, just doing it a lot. Nobody sits there on camera the first time and just nails it. It's just a different energy. It's a different feeling. It's kind of like performing. But even still, if you're a world-class singer, you're not just going to go to your first open mic, you know, and crush it and be, you know, Adele right away. It's like it takes learning on the job for a lot of things. There are people that are naturally gifted so that they have a lot more success, maybe quicker than others. But if you really want to do it, then you have to be willing to struggle at it. So to be on camera, it's never been easier to be on camera. It's like, yes, you might not have a studio and you might not have all these resources in terms of editing and all that stuff, but like you got a phone with a camera on it. You can buy a $5 tripod on Amazon, put it right here and talk into your camera. Every day you could figure out something. You could take word for word the intros that I do or that John Anik does on a UFC pay-per-view. You could literally sit there and transcribe it, right? And be like, he said this. I'm going to memorize this and I'm going to do it in the camera. You do it every day for 30 days. And then at the end of that 30 days, you're going to be a hell of a lot better on camera than you were on day one. And you can do that with everything. You can decide, hey, I want to be a hockey announcer um, or I want to be a, somebody who does Sports Center. So I'm going to just watch Sports Center. And I'm going to write something down that they said or write something like they said or pick a topic. Houston Astros cheated. Here's the who, what, when, where, and why. I'm going to write something and then I'm going to look into my phone and I'm going to record it. I'm going to do it, right? And then guess what? You can do it again. You can do it 100 times a day for 30 days, for 60 days, for 90 days, for a year. 
and the, by the end of it, you'll just figure it out. The, the, the way that I feel like I got good on TV is by realizing and mimicking what it should look and sound like. If you watch enough Sports Center, you kind of know what it should look like and sound like in terms of sitting there on TV, on a camera. Now, you might have your couch in the background instead of a big monitor and TV screen and bells and whistles of a studio, but the work of you still practicing sitting somewhere, talking, and making it digestible for anybody that might watch it, and having like an energy and a presence, then you're going to get better at it. So there's really no secret sauce. It's kind of like working out. You can read a hundred books on bench press and strength training and what's the best things to do and what's the best things to eat. But if you've never walked into the gym, but you've read all those books and you sit down at a bench press and you try to bench press 350 pounds, it's not going to go your way. You need to start small. You need to do it, do it over and over. And you need to see a little bit of progress and then keep doing it, keep doing it. And then before you know it, you might be bench pressing 300 pounds. Might take you a year, might take you two years of solid hard work at it. But if it's something that you really want to do, then uh, you'll do it. So I would just reps, reps, reps. And um, you know, a lot of people, including me, when I was in college, I was like, man, I wish I could get some more time in the studio. I wish I could get more time on the desk, under the lights, reading a teleprompter, because then I'd really improve. And I didn't need that. Now, we didn't have camera phones. Like I had a flip phone back then. But who's to say you need, even need a camera? I could have just read it into the mirror. But now you can really, you can do it into a camera and watch back your progress and, and save it and whatever. You can even post it. You know, you could have your own YouTube channel, post all your stuff, post your mock sports centers every day, and you're just going to get better. So um, that's what I would suggest on that. Uh, how does one ingratiate themselves in the world of sports and media and develop their skill set as a member of the sports media and display that to potential leadership within those respective organizations? I mean, I think you have to have some background. It's never been easier to connect with media people and executives and uh, as you call them uh, to potential leadership, right? It's never been easier to connect. Chances are they're on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, you could probably dig up their email address or somebody close to them. Now, you shouldn't shoot for the president of ESPN, but you could probably find some type of producer, assistant producer at ESPN. You should go to them, though, with some sort of background, You know, whether it's a degree in journalism. It's, it's tough to be 32 years old, not have any background in the field of media or journalism or things like that, and reach out and say, hey, I want to be a commentator, or hey, I want to be on TV. I love it. I really love it, trust me, because there's a lot of people out there that love it, a lot of sports fans. So I'm not saying you have to be you know, a white-collar journalism degree, four-year degree, that sort of thing. There's Connecticut School of Broadcasting, which offers programs that are like three months in terms of kind of getting a certification and helping you with internships and things like that. It does not have to be a move-away-to-college type of thing. That's just how I ended up doing it and it's how other people do it who tend to want to know or know what they want to do from a young age. Um, so Connecticut School of Broadcasting, that sort of thing. Even just starting your own YouTube channel. What if I hit record on this every single day and I gave you guys a fight breakdown every single day? Now, you know, I have a position with the UFC, so the, the platform is there. But if I was somebody you never heard of and I just did it and did it over and over and I got better at it 
and then I kind of like best of, and then maybe when the UFC's in my town, I tried to interview a fighter or any, any type of thing that could be construed as that, then I can maybe bring that to somebody and be like, hey, look what I've done. I got something here. I'm motivated. What do, you, what do you think? And they might just be like, great, keep doing it. Maybe we'll talk to you. But, you know, whatever. Um, I, think, I think that that's the way to do it is just do it over and over. Realize that there are many different avenues to get involved and uh, reach out through social media, through LinkedIn. Just try to make whatever connections you can because uh, really that's, that's how you do it. And a lot of those connections happen on LinkedIn or online and that sort of thing, just emailing randomly. But you can't go to them and just say, hey, I'm a big fan of the UFC, so I want to commentate, so what do I do? Because you need to have some sort of background, some sort of ability already to, uh, to kind of even have a conversation. Um, this is still David Chadman. I personally see myself first doing media scrums open to the public. Yep. Developing my own YouTube sports show, yep, to showcase that skill set. But I want to hear your thoughts and own process as well as what led you to the UFC, ESPN, and beyond. Thank you very much for your wisdom. Huge fan. Thanks, David. Um, so, David, you already you have it here. Media scrums, get credentialed if you can to any type of event, whether it's a UFC event, whether it's, you know, whatever, uh, small town college event or other sports. Um, and, you know, YouTube Sports Show is the perfect avenue. Anybody can, you know, hit go on their phone, upload it to YouTube, and put it out there. Friends and family, maybe they watch it. Um, maybe you have somebody say nice things about it, keeps you going, keeps you improving it, and you kind of figure it out as you go. That's what I did with the podcasting thing. I just was like, what does it take to have a podcast? Oh, really? It takes a recorder. Or you can record an interview on your phone and an internet connection and a few bucks to just like have a podcast hosting thing. Actually, some of them are even free. And you just put it out there. And then you kind of crawl into it. And it's like, oh, maybe I could turn it into a video podcast. Maybe I could do these other things. Um, so you just have to take that first step. And it seems like you have uh, kind of the thing. Um, the process of me, I mentioned it earlier, school. What led me to the UFC? Well, I was at ESPN. I went... Let's get into it in terms of my journey. My first uh, job was in Phoenix. It was behind the scenes. And I sent out resume tapes to try to get uh, on-camera jobs. Now, I'd already known I wanted to be on camera at Ithaca, so I made a resume tape. I was sending out VHS tapes. That's how old I am. So, uh, graduated college in 2005. It was just before DVDs were getting into the, to the fray. Then I was sending out DVDs. Um, got an entry-level job in Casper, Wyoming. I covered sports up there for the NBC affiliate in Casper, Wyoming. All of these small cities in North Dakota and South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, uh, you know, Oregon and Washington, some very remote cities and small markets, but they still have people there and they still have local news and local news affiliates. So in Casper, Wyoming, it's a town of 50,000. Um, but we covered rodeos, and there was a minor league baseball team, and there was an arena league semi-pro football team, and a junior college and high school. So I'm covering high school girls volleyball in Wyoming in the middle of winter. Uh, but it's still sports. It's a coach teaching their players to try to win games. And obviously, you know, you go up to the NFL, it's a coach that's teaching his players and trying to find the best way to win games. Um, so if you really like break it down, put your ego at the door and say, I'm going to cover this sport the best I can and, 
and try to mimic what I've seen on TV and try to uh, come up with stories that are engaging and interesting. It's not just about this team won five to two. It's about you know this coach that has this connection with a player. It's you know it's about stories. So, anyways, from Wyoming, got a job in Texas. Um, had a connection, got a job in Boston after that at the Fox affiliate in Boston. And then I got an agent when I was in Boston. Here's another piece of advice. Don't get an agent too early. Uh, I don't think you need an agent when you're in the small markets. Generally, uh, you can hustle and find your own jobs when you're in the small markets. You don't need an agent to get a job in Wyoming. You don't need an agent to get a job in rural Texas. Um, even in Boston, I got it by having a connection there. You can make the big jump. Once I got to Boston, I realized if I want to work for a sports network, uh, if I want to work anywhere else in Boston, if I'm unhappy with the situation that I'm in right now at my station, uh, or if I want to work for a national ESPN, that sort of thing, I'm going to need an agent. Um, so that's when I started looking around for agents, and that's kind of like applying for a job in a, in a manner of speaking where you're sending your tape out to different agents and they got to want you and you have to like them and uh, sign on with an agent. They got me to ESPN. I worked at ESPNU for three years. I got laid off in April of 2017, right around the time the UFC was starting to look for broadcasters for Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series. And so that's how I got into the UFC. Um, but I think the process, while it's different for every single person in their role, it's somewhat similar in that generally you have to go small platform to big platform, generally, especially for men. Men and women, there's different rules. There just are. Um, not saying it's right or wrong, but if you're a good-looking woman at 25 years old, you can rise up quicker. Um, a guy like me, and there's a lot of other guys that look like me, and... You know, the the roles that you're looking for in terms of a play-by-play -play job of a big property or that sort of thing, then it's generally going to be a longer road to the network level. Again, not right or wrong, but it's just, it's just different uh, sometimes for men and women. But generally what you have to do, though, is you have to go small platform to big platform. If you're a woman, it might be a, a digital uh, reporter for this uh, news outlet's Twitter feed. Or something like that, or a, a Snapchat, ESPN Snapchat for this show, right? And then you kind of can progress up, and then all of a sudden, Maria Taylor, she's you know on College Game Day, and she's done amazing for herself. I worked with her when I was at ESPNU for a few years, um, and then for me, I went small city to big city, um, from Casper to Texas to Boston to ESPN, and then to the UFC. So uh, yeah, that's the process, the the process that I took. Um, this person asks, what material, must be the GOAT, what materials do you need to start a podcast? Also, what would it take to be a guest on your podcast? All right, GOAT, get into the UFC, then you can be uh, on my podcast. Generally, obviously, my podcast has been UFC fighters or coaches, and we'll see if I branch out. So if you uh, throw down in the octagon, you're welcome on my podcast anytime. Materials to start a podcast, very simple, a lot simpler than I even thought. Uh, my audio recorder is small. It's a Zoom H4n. This was on Amazon for like $200 or something like that. $200, $250, something like that. Uh, I have microphones. This lav microphone that's plugged into my computer has inputs here. 
So whether it's this, which is a couple hundred dollars, which the investment is pretty small if you want to have a decent sounding podcast, or you can get microphones to plug into your iPhone. You, if you really want to dumb it down, you could hit the voice recorder on your iPhone and talk to somebody like this. Hello, how's it going? And interview somebody like that. And then just export the audio and post it. Um, really simple. There's a billion websites and businesses that specialize in trying to get your podcast off the ground. So that's that. Uh, Jay Hagholm asks, what is your prep like for calling MMA versus other sports? Um, I didn't have a ton of play-by-play experience in other sports. I did a handful of basket- college basketball games at ESPNU. Um, and again, as I kind of mentioned before, if you're calling a UFC event, you need 26, you know, you need information on all 26 fighters or whoever's fighting. For the college basketball games, I needed to know who the top three scores were, who the guys were that really kind of were the stars of the team. Needed to know, like, the background on the coach, how long he's been there, what kind of program he has. And then, you know, guys, you know the top seven of who's going to play the game, and then the other guys, you kind of can just have some background info just in case they even get into the game or, God forbid, score a basket, right? But uh, for MMA, I think, you know, the prep for MMA is different in that you have to just have a little bit more extensive knowledge on everybody. For the main event fighters, you want to know them inside and out. You know, you really want to know the main event guys, what they do, what what's different about this fight compared to the last fight, what's at stake for them, because if they're in a main event, then obviously there's a lot more at stake than in the first fight of the night. Um, family background, do they, do they have a wife and kids at home? Do, are their kids in the crowd for the first time watching their dad fight or mom fight for the first time up close? Uh, do they have a new coach? Because of MMA, the guys move camps all the time. Do they have a new coach? And obviously this is stuff you want to know about big-time sports as well. But when it's a team aspect, it's very different than when it's an individual aspect. So, you know, if you draw the comparison from MMA to golf in terms of preparation, because they're both individual sports, obviously very different. But if Tiger Woods got a new swing coach, that would be a big story. And if, uh, you know, Cowboy Cerrone decides to partner up with American Top Team and have new coaches and take a different approach, that would be a big story. So it compares to other individual sports, but I think that fighting man is just so personal because of what's at stake with wins and losses. And then like, there's not many other sports where you can go out there in front of millions of people potentially and like get knocked out cold or knock somebody out. Um, the trash talk and, uh, the, the, the highs and lows, the thrill and the agony of victory and defeat is like just so much more raw than, you know, Brooks Kepka came in second place at the Masters last year, and you know it's been on his bucket list to win a Masters, and Tiger's the big story. But for Kepka, he kind of, with a smile and a handshake, congratulated Tiger, right? And the respect is always there for MMA, but um, I think it's so much more raw in terms of what the wins and the losses do because it's one-on-one. It's not one guy out of 150 guys in a golf tournament going to win. It's like one person's going to win this one, one person's going to lose this one. And that's the story for the whole night. And then you get to the most important fight, which is why I fell in love with MMA in no time in terms of covering it, because it's just, it's so different from, uh, from any other sport. I think I got through the Instagram questions. I had a few on Twitter, so I'm going to look up these as well. And, uh, 
just awesome. Thank you guys for watching this. If you're watching it on YouTube or uh, the podcast, just just really cool to see the participation. There's only a few more questions left. How do you practice by yourself to get started from uh, Karan Patil or Karen? Um, what should be the process to give yourself notes and feedback to improve? How do you practice by yourself to get started? I kind of um, kind of already explained that. Get a phone, get a camera, get a recorder if you want to do just audio. But, um, you know, hopefully you have somebody in your life that can give you feedback, I guess. I think, um, like I said before, too, the biggest thing is, like, if you're a big sports fan, you kind of know how it should look or sound. Look to the best ones. Look to your favorites and see if what you're doing compares to them or, or how they sound pull from them. I don't try to be like anybody else. I try to be like myself, but John Anik does some great things. John Gooden does some great things. So Neil Everett, you know, was my favorite sports center anchor. Um, you know, Scott Van Pelt, do you like him? Okay, cool. What does he do? But I'm not going to try to talk like all of those guys. I'm not going to try to exactly mimic what they do or say what they say. But you pull bits and pieces from the people that you respect and admire the most. I think Al Michaels and Joe Buck, I think those guys are great play-by-play announcers. So when I'm watching them, what could I do that, what do they do that I could kind of pull from or just take a note from, oh, that's interesting that he said it that way or that he does that. Or sometimes, most importantly, not talking, right? When Jim Nance announced that Tiger won the Masters last year, he said the return to glory And then he didn't talk for like three minutes. And Tiger had his handshake and his hugs with his kids and high fives with the crowd. And it was just an incredible moment. And the articles were written about how well Jim Nance handled that by not saying anything. Because the moment spoke so much louder than uh, what he could have said. He could have been like, there he is with his girlfriend, Tracy, or whatever her name is. There he is with his son. Oh, his swing coach. How what this might what what this must feel like to them. He could have spoken through that, or you know, a, a not as good announcer would have spoken through that and chimed in. And uh, sometimes the best thing to do is to just shut up, even though we talk for a living. But in terms of the question, to be more specific, practice by yourself. Just practice. I mean, I don't know. How do you practice by yourself? You hit go on the camera and you talk into it based on whatever you want to say, whatever you want to work on. Uh, What should be the process to give yourself notes? I think you just, if you record it and you save it, then in a month you can compare it to how you started. And then if you do it again in six months or whatever, however much you work on it, have those check-ins and compare it. I thought when I first got my job in Wyoming, I thought I was really good the first day. I was like, I'm going to crush this. And by and large, I was solid. People saw that I had potential at being on camera for sports from when I started. But after a year, I was like, man, I don't think I made much progress. I think that I was pretty good when I started, and now here we are a year later, and I think I'm about just as good. And sure enough, I turned on my first day uh, after a year to like compare it and look back, and I was just dumbfounded at how uh, much better I had become, you know, I, just, I didn't even realize it. I felt about the same after one full year being on TV every day. And I had the audacity to think that I was about the same. It's like, how stupid was I? I was, I was way better. You know, when I started, I was way worse. Um, even now I've been doing UFC cards since December of 2017 when I called my first one at UFC Fresno 
And I remember thinking the same thing because I was like, well, at that point I was seasoned. If it was 2017, I was about 10 years in in terms of being on camera. So I'm like, all right, well, probably haven't improved too, too much. But if you look back at that broadcast at Fresno, I'm not going to say it was a train wreck. It's not like it was awful. It was good enough where they offered me more, kept, kept having me back. If it was really bad, I would have been out the back door. So obviously there were pieces of that were good, but I'm way better now. I'm way better now. It's been, you know, almost three or two, two plus years of doing UFC shows all the time and working in the world with other great people and producers and, you know, talking to John Anik about his process and spending time on the road with John Gooden, um, where, yeah, I'm way better now. You know, why would I think that my Fresno show is about the same as what it is now? No chance. And that doesn't mean I didn't have any good calls that night, but just have those check-ins with yourself and you'll know, you'll see your own feedback. I think if you have somebody's, uh, opinion that you respect, then you can, um, obviously lean on them. If they're a big sports fan, if you respect their opinion about announcers that you like or that sort of thing. Uh, Adam, oh man, sorry, Adam. I was going to get to your question earlier. Adam Schoen, uh, he was like the first one to reply on Twitter. Uh, he wrote, does having self-experience of the sport, a, uh, a prerequisite, or can you learn the skills of a broadcaster without personal sport knowledge? Then he says, I know you've taken up jujitsu, so wondered if this is helping your professional broadcast game. Uh, it definitely is. Doing jujitsu is definitely helping uh, my abilities as a UFC broadcaster, no question. But to answer the question, does having self-experience of the sport a prerequisite, or can you learn the skills of a broadcaster without uh, personal sport knowledge? It's absolutely not a prerequisite. Um, you know, I didn't need to do jujitsu to be a UFC announcer, to be a, a, a solid UFC announcer that's continued to grow into my role. I just started in September of 2019. So that means from December of 2017 to September of 2019, I didn't have any actual expertise of what it's like. You know, I've hit a heavy bag before and, and done workouts and things like that, but not actual combat sports. My high school didn't have a wrestling team. I just wasn't in that world. It was all about story and, and seeing the moment, describing the moment. And then think about this, like Doc Emmerich is the top voice for NHL. He never played hockey at a high level, to my knowledge, you know what I mean? Like he's the big voice and has become synonymous with hockey and calls all the biggest moments. And he loves the sport, no question. And he knows the sport like nobody else out there but he didn't play at a high level. You know, I played club hockey in college. So I played all growing up, club hockey in college. I was the high school, my, a captain of my high school team, played youth hockey. Hockey was like my sport growing up. And there have been, I think, two jobs, two kind of the, of the higher profile jobs that I've auditioned for and interviewed for that I didn't get. And one of them was to be the pre- and post-game show host of the New York Islanders. And the other one was to be a studio host of NHL Network. Okay? So the only two jobs I haven't gotten were the hockey jobs. And hockey was my number one sport from when I started playing when I was seven years old until I played club hockey through my uh, junior year of college. And I knew the sport, and I know the traditions, and I love it, and I still do. Um... But as things shook out, the sports where I crushed the auditions were the ones where I didn't get that job, oddly enough, right? 
but I did get a job at ESPNU after I worked in Boston for two years, and Boston is not a big college sports town. It's not like I knew college sports in and out at that time. I've always been a college football fan and March Madness and college hoops and that sort of thing, but I didn't know the ins and outs of college football. I had just worked in Boston for uh, the two years before that. I was covering the Patriots and the Bruins and the Red Sox and the Celtics. It was at the World Series and uh, the Super Bowl and, and things like that, but sure enough, got the job to be on ESPNU because it wasn't about what I knew in that role. And a lot of times in in roles like ours, it's not about what you know at the start. It's about your abilities as a broadcaster to be able to host a show, to run a show, to get the most out of your analysts. And, uh, you know, so personal sport knowledge, I mean, think about it. There's women play-by-play announcers that do a fine job on calling NFL. They haven't played football. But um, I think with MMA, the difference is is it does help because it's a very different, very niche sport. I think the more the niche, uh, the more niche the sport is, the better it is to have some personal experience. So, like, you know, um, not a prerequisite, because all those Olympic sports, like luge, who has experience in luge that's a pro broadcaster? Probably nobody, right? So you just make it about different things, and you lean on your analyst in those cases. In MMA, it's a very niche sport. So the more I can learn about it and the more that I know what it's like or I just can, can have a taste of what it's like to roll with somebody in jiu-jitsu or to uh, spar with somebody if I do some kickboxing or something like that, the more I know what it's like, the more it helps me in terms of describing the action sometimes and knowing what to look for. But it's not a prerequisite to uh, have that self-sport uh, knowledge in this role. Obviously, you know, there's different jobs, and if you want to be an analyst, you have to have played at a high level or coached, but uh, not in the in that gig. Um, there's a good question here that I wanted to make sure to put in. Um, somebody about, maybe I lost it, but somebody asked, if you were 20 years old, what would you, what, what do you wish you had learned if you were 20 years old? You could go back and tell your 20-year-old self, don't do this or do this, or what, what, what would you tell the younger version of yourself now that you know how your career has uh, panned out in this manner? Um, I'll, give, I'll, give, I'll try to give like one on, on just life almost in general is work on things that are in your control. You hear fighters and you hear athletes say it all the time. It's, it's true of almost every field. Don't make your goals tied to something that's not up to you, Right? Don't make your goal in broadcasting to be to call play-by-play for the Super Bowl. Make your goal, you know, much more process-based. I got into the business and I wanted to cover sports in Boston. I was like, I want to cover sports in Boston. It's where I'm from. Grew up loving those teams. Great media sports culture there. It's important to people. It'll be a great thing. Cover big games. They're entitled. They're championships all the time. Um... So I wanted to cover sports in Boston. That was like a goal. Then when I actually got my job and you see how tough the business can be in terms of climbing the ladder and getting to where you want to get, my goal was no longer to cover sports in Boston. My goal was to cover sports in a big city, to cover pro sports, you know, whether it was Denver or Houston or New Orleans, I want to make it to a big city that has pro sports teams and major college teams, and I want to cover, and that's that's what I want to make sure to do. Obviously, 
It's not up to me to be hired in any of those cities, but it's a pretty attainable goal if I do the right things to cover pro sports. But it might not be as easy for me to cover sports in a specific city. I can make it a bucket list that I can be like, that would be really cool and not even a bucket list. And that's the wrong word, but like, this would be awesome. This would be dream job scenario. It's good to have those things to work towards to, to kind of keep you hungry. Um, but I, it didn't really happen for me that way until I put those goals out of my mind. If you start keeping score with other people in terms of, man, I could be just as good as that guy. I should be hosting, uh, intermissions on NHL on NBC. I know hockey like that guy. Why is he there and I'm in rural Texas right now? You know, why, why, why are they co- getting my dream jobs when I'm just as good? I should be able to do that. It's like, it's not about that. It's not about that. It's not up to them. It's not up to you. It's up to a very select few people that make decisions at all the different networks. It changes constantly and it's very subjective. Somebody that dislikes you might be in charge at NBC and they just don't like your look or your voice or they have one of you already or that sort of thing or they're looking for something else and that person's there for 15 years. Well, you're probably just never going to get a job at that network, right? It just happens that way. It's it's up to a lot of different circumstances. So don't make your goals tied to something that's not up to you. Uh, Make them more broad in scope and focus more on the process of how you can get better and how you can improve. And then once I started doing that, that is when I um, started getting all those experiences. I never had the goal to cover the Red Sox in the World Series because I kind of realized how tough it would be to cover sports in Boston. So I put that out of my head. Hopefully I can just cover pro sports one day. I'm going to do everything I can to be the best that I can be so that I'm in the position when an opportunity comes along that I'll be prepared for it. And lo and behold, I make a connection in Boston. I get to cover sports in Boston. And when I was working there for those two years, the Red Sox went to the World Series. All of a sudden, I'm going to Fenway Park, Game 6. The Red Sox win the World Series that night at home for the first time since Babe Ruth was, you know, was involved. Like 1918, they won the World Series at Fenway. All the other ones, they've won on the road. Um, and so things like that just happen. And then in those moments, you just pinch yourself and you go, man, how did this happen? This is amazing. It's really cool. It wasn't something that I was chasing. It wasn't like, finally, it's about time I cover the World Series in Boston. I had been gunning for it. It's like, that's not how it works. So that's the kind of bigger picture advice. In terms of um, a smaller picture, listen to the beginning of episode one of my podcast with Forrest Griffin. I go into it for like five or six minutes, but a guy at ESPN, John Sawatsky, basically taught these courses. He's not with ESPN anymore. But he taught these courses for talent and for producers of how to ask questions, how to ask great questions. If you're interviewing an athlete, it's not about you. It's about them. So get the best out of them. Make the questions short. Make them open-ended. Really make them describe and explain what they're feeling or what they felt and that sort of thing. Don't make it about how much you know. Don't sit there. And if, if, if you watch Bill Belichick answer questions at a press conference, yes, he's not a man of a lot of words at a press conference. Generally, he doesn't want to give stuff away. But a lot of times, it's because the questions are bad. If you say, well, in the fourth quarter, you guys were really uh, working it, you know, working the pass game and the sidelines and Tom Brady, it seemed like he couldn't miss. Uh, is that something you expected to do? What's he going to say? Yes or no? Or... 
just give you, uh, what kind of question is that? Instead, you say, how would you describe the fourth quarter? He's going to be forced to give you something more than a yes or a no, which he often does. So learn how to ask great questions. Uh, learn that if you're interviewing somebody or if you are teeing up an analyst, let's say I'm on the desk and I'm working with Michael Bisping as my color analyst, I don't want to talk a lot about this fighter does this well, this well, and this well. Michael, is not is that what you expected? Because then that's a yes or no from him, and then he's got to do a lot of work on the end. If I ask Michael, Michael, Dan Hooker's won six of his last seven. What makes him such a good fighter? Then he immediately can say, he is good because he controls range, he stays on the outside, he's great on the... F- he can just totally launch into that. So when you realize that as a broadcaster, you have to know when... It, when, when it's up to you to entertain or kind of be on camera, be the story like I am right now, output as it, as it would be, you have to know when that's your role or whether your role is to get the best out of somebody else. And if you're ever interviewing somebody, your role is to get the best out of somebody else. You're not a comedian. You're not Stephen Colbert or Jimmy Fallon trying to be funny while interviewing somebody. The best people at interviewing are the ones that realize it's not about them. It's about who you're interviewing or who your analyst is. But it is about you when you're doing the highlights. That's why people like Scott Van Pelt, because he's engaging and entertaining and people like his style when he's doing the highlights. He's funny enough to carry it along and give information. But but, but know when you're not the story, when you have a guest... You're talking to Steph Curry post game. Now we need to make Steph the star of this interview and that sort of thing. So that was the, that's a really important thing that I didn't figure out until I was at ESPN. I was I was long in the tooth at that point, relatively speaking, and I really kind of was a career changer, biggest career changer for me. And it came like eight years after I was already on on TV. Um, man, I think that just about does it. Uh, best t- William Harris, best tip for networking within the industry. Like I said before, Twitter, Instagram, reach out. That's how a lot of people have contacted me with these questions. And even before I asked for these questions, Instagram, like if you pop in my inbox or anybody else, it's like, I might not be able to answer you. I might not see it. It's not like I get a billion messages, but I don't always check it or LinkedIn. Like I don't always have the time to to do everything like that to network, but just play the numbers game, man. I would just email so many broadcasters uh, when I was in college, just looking for any bit of information or meeting or anything like that. Um, Dave Gosher was the radio announcer for the Boston Bruins hockey team. He's now in Las Vegas. He's the announcer for the Golden Knights. When I was in college, I just emailed him out of the blue and said, hey, I'm going to be home on winter break in a few weeks. I want to do this for a career. Do you have any tips? I'd love to meet you. And Dave Gosher, without knowing me ever at all, uh, answered my email, and he said, man, I'd love to have you. Um, I'd love to meet you and chat with you. Happy to do it. I'll give you two tickets to the game. You can sit on press level. And so a few weeks later, I was home on winter break. I went into Boston with my brother. There were two media passes waiting for us. We sat up in the press box on the ninth floor. I went into the radio booth. I talked to Dave before the game for half hour, and I talked to him after the game for like 45 minutes. And it was just so nice of him to do that for me. And I would have never done that if I didn't just blindly send him an email saying, hey, big fan of yours, would just love to talk with you at some point or get any tips. And and an email would have sufficed for me. If he emailed me back and said, man, this, 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 but he went above and beyond, super nice guy, and uh, 
would have never happened if I didn't do that. So if you email 50 people and one person gets back to you, like a Dave Goshen, they give you tickets and then they meet with you and they show you what their job is like, well then, you know, it took 50 emails to get a priceless experience. So just don't underestimate the fact that people want to help, like I'm helping as best as I can here and I know uh, I'll continue to get asked and I'm always going to be a pay it forward type of person. Um, top three skills that make a good broadcaster. Man, that's tough. I don't know if I can break it down to skills, a specific set of skills, but I think you need to have a presence on camera if you're going to be on TV. I think you obviously need a voice that, uh, something that's pleasant to listen to that has the ability to match what you're covering or, um, you know, what you're in. So, you know, look voice, there's two. I mean, it's, it's just a necessary thing. And then, uh, you know, I think just the drive and the, and the, the hunger to not just want to do it on camera. You have to love the process of it. You have to love the homework. You know, you have to understand that the homework going into a fight card. I remember hearing, I think Peyton Manning or somebody saying they pay you in the NFL to practice because the games are free. You'd play the games for free, but they're paying you to put in the proper preparation that it takes to be great. And I feel that way with the UFC going to the arena on fight night and getting in, you know, getting dressed in the back in a suit, getting ready to go on camera and then being able to sit there octagon side and call the fights. Man, that's, that's fun. That is a lot of fun. But, you know, sitting at your computer for hours a day, looking up stats and reading articles about different fighters from all over the world and putting in different research, you got to find fun in that because anybody can just sit there and talk octagon side, but you got to be prepared. So you have to, to, to like the grind of it. And you also have to like the grind of it enough to move to Wyoming. Not everybody's willing to do that. Or places like that to, to struggle at the lower ends of it, to get paid very little money to do it. it. You know, fighters get paid little when they start. They're like, man, on the regional scene, it's a struggle just to make it. But the, but the goal is there. And the ones that you see in the UFC are the ones that love it enough to stick it out. And there's plenty of fighters out there that are probably, you know, four and three. And they realize after a while, maybe I don't want to do this as much as I thought I did. You know, you play the guitar. I want to be a big uh, guitar player. I want to be in a band. And then you find out how tough it is. And you go, maybe I don't want it as much as I thought I did because I'm not willing to do it uh, anymore. So um, I think that, that that about does it. My friend Alex Del Barrio says, how would you recommend those interested in combat sports play-by-play? to go about it, should they be working with promoters or networks to get started, asking for a friend. ADB's been calling college hoops, I think, for CBS Sports, and uh, worked with him a little bit down in Texas. Uh, Alex Del Barrio, good to hear from you. Um, in terms of combat sports, I mean, there's boxing down there in South Texas, Alex, you know that. So, uh, yeah, I think just promoters and networks and, man, just reaching out to the people that make it happen. And don't overshoot it. Obviously, if you're trying to call play-by-play for the UFC right now, you might be unhappy because the role doesn't seem to exist right now. The, you know, kind of the cart's full. Just like, you know, sometimes people ask me, what's my dream job? And I've realized to just love the job I'm at, which I really do. So I'm not, uh, I'm not worried about, I'll only have a good career if I do this. I'll say one thing that I've always thought would, have been, would be really cool is to anchor the Olympics to be the guy that's in the studio that Bob Costas did for so long and that Mike Tirico does. I think, you know, the world just watches, the whole country loves the Olympics. Um, 
it's it's a special thing. It has great stories. It has high drama, and it's just so well done by NBC and uh, whoever's going to pay the, that money for it for the broadcast rights is going to certainly do it the right way. So you know that'd be awesome, but I've realized at this point in my career it's probably not going to happen. You know you don't just waltz into jobs like that. Mike Tirico, Bob Costas did it for how many years, and Mike Tirico just started doing the Olympics like two or four years ago, and uh, he's not slowing down. He, he's young enough where he could have that job for another 20 years. So where does that put me at 57? Well, then I'm probably too old where they're not going to start me doing that. So I'm totally at peace with the fact that I probably will never call play-by-play for a Super Bowl. I'll probably never anchor the Olympics coverage and that sort of thing. But heck, uh, I never thought I would work for the UFC and that I'd like it this much. And sure enough, MMA is now like my favorite sport. It's my favorite job I've ever had. Some of my best friends are the people that I work with for the, for the UFC that I just met a couple years ago. And um, man, you just got to keep enjoying where you are, but always be willing to grow and get better. And uh, read books, man. It doesn't matter if they're on broadcasting or whatever else, but I feel like those self-help books and the personal development that I talked about with Safe Saud has been a key to my success is kind of thinking about um, what's bigger than your day-to-day and what you can do to better yourself physically uh, and, and take care of yourself the best you can physically and emotionally and mentally. And it leads to life. <clears throat> Realize that. Um, heard a talk from a guy named Jim Rohn, I think who passed away like 10 or 11 years ago, but he was the guy who taught Tony Robbins. And I'll make this the last thing, but he said, don't focus on what you're going to make at a job. Focus on what you're going to become. And always work on yourself more than you work on whatever job you're at. Because the way to have success is to attract success. Don't go chasing success. Don't think, I have to do this and I have to do this and then I'm going to be successful if I go get that success over there. I go get that job. If you work on yourself first and you try to improve yourself as much as you can, as often as you can, that success and that job, whether you knew about the job or not, it'll come find you. It'll come find you and you'll be well equipped to handle it and make the most of any opportunity if you work on yourself first. I think that's going to do it. Thanks everyone for listening along and making it this far if you did. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, uh, wherever you listen. Um, this is my first video YouTube, so exciting there. I'm in talks to maybe get a uh, camera set up and make all of my fighter interviews on video. Of course, they're all available on YouTube and on podcasts so far, but um, hopefully the show keeps growing. I, I enjoy doing it, and uh, hopefully to all the young broadcasters or aspiring broadcasters out there that listen to this, I hope it helped you. Let's have a dialogue. Maybe we'll do some more Q&As down the road, um, but very cool. So I'm going to sign off. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Brendan Fitz TV. Really appreciate it, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it.